I want you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 this morning. Usually when I'm this amped up, the best thing to do is just start preaching. Otherwise, I will go too far down a rabbit trail and never be able to share with you what God has placed on my heart today. We had a victorious Sunday. It's already been referenced this morning, uh, just last week. For many months, the people of Cornerstone and Fellowship of Decula and the people of Meadow Baptist Church of Lawrenceville have been praying together and working together and planning together and just petitioning the Lord to show us how to uh, inherit the land that he had told us to go into. And by that, I mean how Lord... Lord, will we bring together these two very diverse assemblies into one people group that will set our hearts like flint to be able to worship and honor and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in our community. And last Sunday, we took a congregational vote to ratify what the the leaders had seen to be God's will, and it was overwhelmingly approved. Um, I believe there were only four no votes in the whole congregation. Um, That is a minor miracle, amen. And I just want to say, if you're here today and you weren't able to vote yes last week, I don't know who you are and I love you and I thank God that you came back. Let's move forward into this thing as the Lord gives us grace to do so. We have so much to do uh, before his second coming, before he returns. And I tell you, I don't want to waste another day. How many of you were thinking about when he found you and where he found you during some of the song service today? Can you remember where he found you? I've got some family here today. My parents are here and my aunt is here. And uh, they, they remember when. They remember when Jeff wasn't walking with Jesus and they saw me for many years at my worst. And some of you out here can recall times before Christ came to you, sought you out, bought you out, brought you up, however you want to say it, and set you free. And this morning, uh, as we think along those things, I have um, a message that is really, a lot of it is for those of you that might be here today and you're not believers in Jesus. doesn't mean you're a, a horrible, immoral person, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And one of the things that is my privilege today on this Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, is I want to share what the gospel truly is and what it means. I grew up in church. I was around the gospel really my whole childhood. But no, I, and I always believed that Jesus died on the cross, but I never connected what that had to do with me as a boy and as a teenager. And so although I was around the gospel most of my childhood, the gospel wasn't in me. All I knew was the historical facts about this one named Jesus. I knew some theological facts, but I never really found the place where those intersected until I was 24 years old. And so I will say today that there will be many people in churches today that understand the data. They understand the verses. They know the story but their hearts haven't been opened and set free by the grace of God through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, whereby God brings a person to say, oh, it's not just that he died, he died for me and I really need him. And that's a work that I can't preach into you, but I can, I can preach enough about it, the Holy Spirit can put it into you. And I'm praying that this day that'll happen. And for the rest of us, I want to remind us of what we're doing with our lives. This passage in 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to begin in the middle of it, in verse 14, um, this is a passage that, that really reconnects also the Christian with his, with his or her life purpose because we're living in a really chaotic world. Raise your hand if you think it's going to get more peaceful this year in America. Yeah, well, the whole room has now been infected with my skepticism. Wonderful. I, I, I Don't say I didn't give you something today, but it's, it's true. We live in kind of a chaotic country. There is no horizontal hope, but that doesn't mean that there isn't vertical hope. And so while we're not looking at things that are temporary, we're looking towards things that are eternal. We are are subject to, at times, forgetting why we're here, to get locked into the horizontal, 
to start becoming caught in the machinery, the wheels of this culture and this age and this generation. And so while I want to give the gospel to those that don't know Jesus today, I also want to remind the Christian, you have an exalted purpose for your life, that you are actually here with intentionality from this great God that we sang to and sang about this morning. And so what I'd like to do, I like to do this every Sunday. If you're our guest here, this is just something we do at the beginning of the service. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand as we read the opening passage of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians in chapter number 5, and I'm going to read down into chapter number 6 for a couple of verses. I'm going to talk to you about the raised up life because I don't want anybody living here today, leaving here today without having a full opportunity to understand that your life was not meant to be lived out in a cold, tomb-like existence. That you were born, and then for those of you that have been born again, we are called to exit the tomb and live in the power of God in this present generation. And nobody is immune from that. Anybody that wants to live and walk in the power of God, the power, resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you can. There's absolutely no force of hell that can prevent that. And most of the times, if it's not happening, it's because we haven't made it our priority. But this morning, I believe some will embrace that priority. 2 Corinthians, chapter number 5, verse number 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here we go. Christians, listen. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, verse 1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. I want you to pray with me that the power of the Holy Spirit will bless both the preaching and the hearing. I've been praying all week about the preaching, and I prayed a little bit this week about the hearing, but I, I sense this morning that the text itself will do what it's supposed to do. I'm praying that all of us will have ears to hear. This message has something for all of us. So, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask you to begin to move in this place now. We ask you to begin to tender hard hearts, 
warm, chilly hearts. God began to cause a spiritual pulse to beat in dry hearts. For distracted hearts, Lord, reorient, center us in the purpose in our generation. Father, give us deeper hungers than we had yesterday. And Lord, let us no longer feast at inferior tables trying to satisfy those hungers. I pray, Father, for an awakening in the hearts of husbands and dads and granddads. I pray, Father, for a zeal and a passion to find the daughters of God in this house. I pray, Lord, for churches all in this area, for our friends down the street, for our friends in the uttermost parts of this county. I'm asking that there might be holy fire in the sanctuary so that this is no Easter Sunday that just goes down as blasé. I pray for salvation, God. Lord, I pray you would awake the spiritually dead. God, show them what you showed me in 1994. Show the need to everyone that's got it. And Lord, I pray that by your power, by your glory, by your mercy, and by your grace that you will destroy empty orthodox religion in every heart today, that you might awaken a thriving, living, burning, holy zeal. Lord, let us be sacrifices on the altar for your glory. God, don't leave us in Bible Belt Southern Christianity, but God, raise us up, Jesus. Move in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Fill us and do something dynamic that'll change and transform life and eternity for somebody. We ask this together collectively, unified in Jesus, we pray it in his name, and the church says, amen, 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 amen. You can be seated. Oh. Mm. What does it mean to live a raised up life? I've said this so often, I write about it regularly on the, on the blog, but I can't get away from it, and I just kind of come to the point to recognize I may not ever be that deep because I'm just fixated on this one thing that tends to dominate my thinking and dominate ministry and dominate my relationships. What is that thinking? That we were made for so much better than any of us have experienced, are experiencing, and if we don't change, will experience. That God has done all the work that he has done through the person of Jesus Christ, not to tweak our life to version 1.1, but to bury version 1.0 and start a version of life that is immeasurable because we're walking in the life of Christ. I do not believe that a single one of us were placed into the kingdom for such a time as this to be spectators watching a select few walk in anointing and walk in blessing and walk in favor. I believe that every single one of us are qualified by the deposited earnest of our inheritance, the spirit of the living God, that qualifies us to walk in the blessing of God at a level that I would signify and typify with this phrase, the raised up life. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that dwells in your temple, my Christian friend. It is not a, a junior version. The scriptures teach that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives and operates in me and you. I believe the difference is, and I want to assault this difference when it appears in my life, the difference is, is we sometimes don't know how to cooperate with that power. We've been trained in our lives to live for or to a lesser power or in a lesser power. There's all sorts of hybrids and, and counterfeits that look like the real thing, but there are times when we say, I know that Jesus lives in me. 
I know that God has saved me. I know that the Holy Spirit is leading me. But where is the power? Where is the joy? Where is the patience? Where is the goodness? Where is the love? Where is the faith? Well, friends, the raised up life is not add water, microwave for 30 seconds, and mix. It's a life of abiding, and it's a life that only comes if you make it your chief hunger. So let's learn a little bit about that today. We have a resurrected vision for life. Go back into verses 14 and 16, uh, 14 through 16 in chapter number five, and let's just get to the basis. We're going to start at the foundation and build our way upward today. Here's our motivating force. We are controlled by the love of Christ. Verse number 14, the love of Christ controls us. Now, that is a lordship phrase if I've ever seen one in Scripture. It is not simply that, oh, we love Jesus so much, we just can't help ourselves but to do what's right. Now, that may be a part of it, but it actually emphasizes the cause to that effect. The cause is that, no, we only love him because what? He first loved us. And it is that love that he has for us that controls us, that we can't escape from, that no longer allows us, enables us to enjoy our seasons of sin, that no longer leaves us comfortable in living a life for ourselves, as we'll see in a few moments, but that we are controlled by this unfathomable love. I think about my own life, and I'll testify just because this week it's just been so powerful in my heart. A few weeks ago, one of my good, good friends, he was a... a, a, a fun guy to be around back in the old days, pre-conversion. And we did a lot of things together that, that I'm not proud of for certain. And, and when I came to Christ in 1994, one of the first people I told was Carlos. He was my friend. He was six foot four, Puerto Rican, and he and I hung out together. We were twins, amen? <laughs> Carlos and I went everywhere to go. I went to Carlos and I said, man, I don't know what's happened. I turned my life over to Jesus, and, and something's different. He said, well, let's go celebrate. Let's go get some drinks. Let's go bar hop. And I said, no, you don't understand, man. Something is new in me. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to get drunk anymore. I'm done getting high, man. I'm just, something's happened. And he just looked at me, and he said, that, he said you'll be back drinking with me in six weeks. In August, it'll be 22 years. 22 years. Now, that's, that's to the Lord. What is that? That's raised up life. That's, that's redemption. That's being set free. But here's the thing. I, I found out three weeks ago, I got a note on Facebook from a mutual friend, and they said, Carlos is dead. Carlos had died. And I thought, we used to live in the tomb together. One of us made it out, and the other didn't. And the one that made it out can't take any credit for it, except that he was made to see the one who brings people out of the tombs. You see, I've been thinking about this love of Christ because on that day in August of 94, that's when a new love began to be birthed in my heart. I found meaning. I found purpose. I, I finally found one that I could trust that wouldn't leave me, wouldn't walk away, wouldn't disappoint, wouldn't abandon. And so I just decided if I once lived my whole life for the world and the flesh and the, 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 the things that, that encompass that, then I'm just going to live my whole life now for the one who loves me so much. And it's that love that controls the Christian. Now, if you're not a believer here, I want to tell you something. We don't always operate in that awareness of that love. Sometimes Christians act like non-Christians or worse. 
Sometimes Christians can appear to be some of the most loveless people. I'm not saying that because we're saved, we are yet perfected. But if you wait a while, we will be. Because the back of the book says that we're going to have glorified bodies with perfect spirits. And in that day, we'll be as we were ever meant to be. But in the meantime, we have to remain aware of the love of Jesus as he controls our lives and we live for him. Uh, Our missional fire comes next. And this is where I want to dart in and out of our, our purpose. Watch this in the end of verse 14. Love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we've concluded something. We've got some convictions that the one that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And speaking to Jesus, it says he died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died, and then those little three words, and was raised. You see, here is part of the gospel in a nutshell. And I don't have to berate this. I think honest people will admit this, and unless you just don't want to go there with me, I'm going to just assume you're honest. Can you, can you agree that you're a sinner? Can you agree with that? And then the reason why we can say that is because there's actually a standard by which we're measured. And that standard that we've fallen short of, we, we don't measure up to. That standard is the life of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, the Bible's going to tell us here in a few verses, knew no sin. I want you to think about this. Jesus, though fully God, was fully man. He submitted himself unto an earthly life. He was tempted in all points, just like we are, but the Bible says he never gave in. He never sinned. So he lived 33 and a half years, and he never had a fallen thought. He never said an unholy word. He never acted in anything less than a perfect manner in the midst of conflict, in the midst of community. He always did those things which pleased the Father, and that is why the Father on two occasions spoke from heaven audibly and said, this is my beloved son, it is in him that I am well pleased. He never said that about me and you prior to Jesus. And because we are sinners, there comes this egregious penalty placed upon us, and that penalty is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and it indicates not only a physical death that is the result of the more severe death, and that's spiritual death. It's what Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden when they rebelled against God, and they lived according to their own wisdom, and they leaned on their own understanding, and they took the counsel of the serpent, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And the Bible says that immediately they became aware and, and were in a sense of shame because of their nakedness. And they did what a lot of religious people do. They tried to cover up with things that they could make and put in front of them to keep them safe from God's wrath. The Bible says that the the wages of sin is death. And I'm going to give you something that I never understood until I was 24. Somebody has to die for your sin. Somebody must die for your individual sin. There has to be a death applied to your personal culpability before God. So that's where we move from the general, well, Jesus died for the, for the world, that kind of thing, and say, let's just make it more specific. Somebody had to die for me, and there's only two options. Friend, you can die for your sin. You can. And you will die physically, and the Bible says that you will die spiritually, and you will die forever and ever in eternal torment. That's old-fashioned preaching, right? It's only as old-fashioned as the Bible. You will die forever and ever, always paying the debt but never paid up. Or, what does this verse say? This verse says, one died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, the death that Jesus gave because he had no sin of his own to die for, that death was fully sufficient to cover the death penalty on all of us. 
And because he died for all, then all of us that are in him, we are dead. We have paid the price. There's nothing left to pay. That means what you did last year, last decade, last month, last night, 15 minutes ago. For if you belong to Jesus, it is under his blood, it is under his death. There is therefore now no condemnation upon you. It is an all or nothing scenario. You don't help him. You don't co-sign. He doesn't need a co-signer. You're either fully pardoned or fully condemned. Which one? Come on. <laughs> let's, go, let's go there. All right. Let's do it. But watch this. He says that we're all dead in Christ in the sense of we have had his payment applied to our account. Therefore, the death sentence has been paid. But watch this. Watch the response, Christian. So that those who live, I'm dead in Christ. He's paid, he's paid my debt. I've died, yet I live in Christ also. It's a simultaneous transaction. Died to self, alive in Jesus. But watch this. I, I live not any longer for myself. It's not even a suggestion. It's a stated theological fact. That those of us that are alive in Jesus, we will no longer live unto ourselves, but we will live unto him who died and was raised. So we all experience a death, and all of us that are in Christ experience a resurrection reality. And it is that resurrection, that new life, when you're born the second time, Jesus called it born from above, born again, you are born with a new purpose. You're born with a new nature. You're born, I'm talking about the second birth, you are born in Christ as a new creation, and we'll get down there in just a second. And so it's going to change what I call our main focus, verse 16, our main focus. From now on, therefore, we regard no one to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's our main focus, two things. We see souls. Listen, church, evangelistic fires are dying because our culture tells us people won't believe in the gospel anymore. So our churches are turning into big pep rallies where we all get together, and then our lives are turning into uh, secret service Christians, and we've been taught, you know, preach the gospel all the time and occasionally use words. That's a wonderful cliche. It happens to be abhorrent. It's not something you should practice. If you're going to share the gospel, yeah, live the gospel, but you can only share the gospel verbally. I'm sorry, you can't interpretive dance somebody at the water cooler into the kingdom. Nothing against interpreted dance. I'm just saying you've got to add some gospel words to it. You've got to tell them, we see souls. Look at what he says here. Paul says, because of this new life in Christ, because we have been raised, because we're no longer living for ourselves, from now on, we don't regard people according to the flesh. This has been something on my heart for a while. One of the things I uh, am praying about and talking to some people in the church and talking to some friends outside of the church, I believe one of the things that God wants to raise up in this community, and I believe that our church will play a pivotal part, is um, a move among the body of Christ for racial reconciliation. Now, I look out here today, I see white, black, brown, Hispanic, Asian. That's great. That's awesome. But again, we've got to move out here. It's easy to come and sit down, but listen, when was the last time you had lunch with somebody who didn't have your skin color? When was the last time you went and hung out and ate dinner or had somebody over at your house that didn't look like you? And friends, listen, we don't regard people according to the flesh. We see souls. And those of us that are in the body of Christ, we're knit together in Jesus. doesn't matter what, what skin we're wearing. 
Doesn't matter what our ethnic box we check when we get our driver's license. We are one in Christ. And listen, I'm going to go ahead and confess something. I'm kind of a stumpy, round, peach-colored guy with a bald spot. I looked in the mirror. That's what I saw this morning. That describes me, but that does not define me. Who defines me is my identity in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is where I find my identity. And if you have that identity, then you and I share a brotherhood. We share sisters and brothers in Christ. So when we're going out here, listen, there's so much racial hostility. There's so much social barriers. It's just getting worse and worse with political lines being drawn in the sand. And we're looking to the Republicans or the Democrats or the independents to try to solve that mess. In the name of Jesus, the only one who brings peace and harmony is the king himself. And if that's going to happen, it's going to happen through the church. So we see souls. You say, Jeff, what kind of church you got? You, you just confessed you're a little white guy. You pastor with another white guy. Y'all got a white church? Well, some of us have white skin. Doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you. Say, Jeff, as a young church, everybody in the praise team looked like a 20-something. You got a bunch of millennials in there. It doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you. Hey, listen, some senior citizens want to get up here and have a Rolling Stones reunion. We're cool with that. <laughs> Can't do a Barry Manilow kind of thing, though. I'm sorry. We're just not going to go. The point being is this. It's not a type of church. We're not in Baskin-Robbins. We're not picking what flavor suits us best, and if you run out of that flavor, we'll move it down there where they've got the flavor. Listen, I'm talking about seeing souls, the people we work with, the people in our neighborhood. We, we are so judgmental. We draw lines. We gravitate towards those that we're comfortable being around, and in doing so, we probably miss manifold opportunities where God's saying, I'm going to take you out of your racial zone. I'm going to take you out of your comfort zone. I'm going to take you out of your, 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 your cultural cocoon. Paul he worked with the Gentiles. He got ripped up quite a bit by the, the Hebrews, but ultimately he was like, I'll become whatever I need to become in order that I might become the, the person through whom God works to reach all people by any means. But we, we see souls because we've first seen the Savior. Paul throws this in. I am still in my first point. Lord, help me this morning. We see the Savior. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Come on, let's, let's get a little realistic, especially those of you that were saved as adults. Did you ever go through that phase where you had enough of the fear of God that you didn't want to go overboard in irreverence, but you didn't have enough of the fear of God where you were actually going to submit to him and give your life to him? So I actually thought I was a pretty good guy compared to all the reprobates I was hanging out with because there were certain curse words I wouldn't say. I wouldn't take the Lord's name in vain as if that was going to help me get to heaven one day. Um, you know, for a few years there, my, my folks would call me on Easter and, you know, I'd try not to get drunk the night before and I'd, I'd go and then I would immediately leave church and go right back to the pig pen. But I thought, well, yeah, hey, Lord, you see, I was in, I was in church today. I was in church. Leave me alone, but I was there. Did you ever go through that time where you, you wanted to regard him like in, you weren't submitted to him, you weren't going to follow him, but, but you had enough of religion in you to where you wanted to kind of walk on eggshells. So you would admit he was a mighty miracle worker. You would say, well, you know, he was an incredible prophet. Nobody ever spoke like he did. You know, he was a, a one who showed mercy and kindness, and he was for the hungry, and he was for the poor. So he was a social uh, uh, revolutionary. 
And, and I, I like him because he didn't play with the system. And he, he went in there and told all the religious powerhouses, all the organized religion people, he told them he wasn't going to have any of that. And so we would say nice things about Jesus. And you know what we call that? We call that regarding Christ in the flesh. Paul says right there in verse number 16, he said, we, we once, he gets testimonial here, he said, we once regarded Christ according to flesh. Paul's was not even close to being reverent. Paul thought that Jesus Christ was a blasphemer and willingly and worthily received the death penalty for being a, uh, an apostate towards Yahweh. And Paul was doing everything in his power to rid his generation of any trace of Jesus Christ, his teachings in the church. His name was Saul of Tarsus at that time. And Paul is looking back now as the apostle and he's saying, you know, when they called me Saul, all of my thoughts about Jesus were fleshly. I just want to be gentle here, but I do want to be clear. Um, complimenting Jesus does not serve you any good. Saying nice stuff about Jesus. A lot of people that don't follow Jesus will be nice today. I saw some stuff online and people trying to say nice stuff about Easter. Easter is all about hope. I'd like to raise my hand and say, hope in what? You know, my friends, our faith is objective. Our faith is rooted and anchored in a person, and this person is in Jesus. And we must have biblical, sound, reasonable, scripturally reasonable understanding about who he is and what he said. And we have to get off the fence. The pressures of our culture are begging you to just keep sitting on the fence or to jump off on the wrong side of the fence. And we're coming to a time in the history of the church in America where the fence is going to be obliterated and you'll fall on one side or the other. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just saying here, we can't go on just giving lip service to Jesus in the flesh. It's not about attending church on Sunday. I hope you'll come every week. I hope you'll come on Wednesday. I hope the students will come. Bring your kids Sunday nights at Forge. They're not having it tonight, but every Sunday night, bring your students to Forge. Bring your kids to 9 a.m. and let us help you. But listen, it's not about going to church. Coming and sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian, a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a Porsche. It just doesn't work that way. But when we come to that place where we realize the magnitude of his love for us and his mercy towards us and his pursuit of us when we were ignorant or, or rebellious or distracted by temporal things and yet he kept pursuing us and maybe even those times where we knew God was after us but we presumed he was coming after us to get us, to destroy us and yet when he finally got us, we found out he didn't destroy us. He, he brought us into the kingdom through grace and love and mercy. And that's got to have a revolutionary impact on our thinking. My prayer is that we are a church that doesn't treat Jesus Monday through Saturday as an hors d'oeuvre, even a tasty hors d'oeuvre, but that he is the waking and sleeping and living main entree of who we are and what we're about. At work, at home, at school, in the neighborhoods, we see souls, we see the Savior. Verse 17, we not only have a resurrected vision for life, we have a renewed vision, excuse me, view of people. I want to give you something, Christian. This is so good. I love these verses. We ourselves are now new, brand new. <laughs> I used to work with a fella. I'm going to get to verse 17 in a minute. Um, he was actually my first African-American friend. I'd call his name, but he's in Atlanta. He ministers in another church, and I don't 
I don't, I should have asked his opinion, but I can tell you this, his nickname was Fly. Fly, it was his initials, F-L-Y. So Fly and Lyle hung out all the time, and we worked together, and we had a good time. And he liked clothes, and he'd go out, and he I promise you this, on a Monday morning, because he was at a wedding on the weekend, he wanted to get mileage out of the tuxedo, he showed up to work in the print room in a tuxedo on Monday morning, because Fly had style. He had the jerry curl, remember the jerry curl? Somebody help me, good night. We're, we're a multi-ethnic congregation, I just preached that. All the white people are Googling Jerry Curl. <laughs> so Fly would come in and he'd have new clothes on. And every time he'd come in, he'd, he'd, look, he'd walk right up to me and say, I look brand new. I look brand new. It happened like once a week. I look brand new. I look brand new. I'm going to tell you something. This is how my weird mind works. When I got saved and I saw this verse for the first time where it says in verse number 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I promise you, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you look brand new, Jeff. You look brand new. You're looking brand new. You're looking brand new. I hope you don't find that irreverent. That's just how I kind of I roll sometimes. But the beauty of it is this is a major verse. Because the enemy wants to tell you you're not brand new. And you know what he does? He brings his case and he says, if you're brand new, why do you still occasionally do the things you used to do when you weren't brand new? You think you're brand new in Jesus? I know your Bible says you're a new creation. Well, the Bible's true, but you must not be saved because you still struggle with this. You still are battling this. You still can't get over this. You're still uh, uh, kind of limping through this situation. If you were brand new, then you'd be all brand new instantaneously. But the devil is a liar. Do you know that? He's a liar. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. We are being sanctified. Salvation, we are saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. And the being saved means that there is, listen, the Bible says we are crucified with Christ. Do you know that crucifixion is a slow death? They don't just puncture the the crucified ones and, and then all of a sudden they're dead. They die of suffocation. And so part of the reality is, is that newness comes through seasons. And though positionally we are new, but practically that newness is a maturing process. So the enemy comes in, he wants to say, you ain't new. Say, well, the Bible says I'm new. Yeah, but you're not completely new. You say, I know that. But but when when we stand before the Lord, I'm going to tell you this, this ought to encourage you. This is the gospel, by the way. This is why we can speak with confidence. This is why we can, we can just lean and press into Jesus when maybe we're not feeling strong or holy or, or good enough, all those enoughs. The Bible says you are a new creation. It is literally a word in the Greek that indicates that you are of a different sort than you used to be. You're not the same as you used to be. You say, well, I still look the same. Well, that's okay because you're looking on the outside. God's looking on the inside. And you say, well, I still feel the same. I still struggle. I'm not, I still battle depression. I still have relational f- fractures in my family and so on and so on. That's okay because the repairman, the one who is building all things anew, is working on you. He's working in you, and he's working for you. You just have to start agreeing with the Scripture. I'm brand new. So when the Father looks at you, he does not see all of your flaws. It doesn't mean that in his omniscience he's not aware of them. When he looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son Jesus Christ upon you. And he deals with you in that way. If, if you don't like that, if that's a little too grace-based for you, let me just tell you. Well, how are you standing before him then? On your own merit? 
You trying real hard to get up in there? It's like, man, I, I went all day without cursing. I am welcome in the presence. No, there's not a moment of time where we can earn it. And those that are trying are exhausted and defeated and discouraged and judgmental and unhappy. But those of us who can look up and agree with God saying this, you've begun a good work, you will finish it. I, I am not going to quit prematurely. Why? Because we believe in resurrection power. We believe that if he defeated the greatest enemy, which is death, hell, and the grave, then these lesser enemies that come against us, he will defeat them too. So we're new creatures. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're not condemned, my friend. God isn't judging you, child of God. The voice of shame you hear does not source itself in the throne of Jesus Christ. When you, if you're living under a canopy of shame, I want to tell you, it does not come from the Lord. The Lord will convict you about a sin and will offer to bring you straight up out of it. But he will not stand at a distance bellowing about how rotten you are. That is straight up the activity of hell or our flesh. And so we have to decide who we're going to listen to. I'm going to listen to the one that rose from the dead. I'm not going to listen to the one who's going to burn forever in the lake of fire. I'm going to listen to the one who trumped death and hell and sits on the throne because I'm going to, he loves me. He died for me. He, let's, let's just let the text be. Here we go. We ourselves are now new, but our relationship with God is now new. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This word reconciled, translated reconciled in the ESV. It's a Greek word. And it's, a, it's a highly relational word. God doesn't want you to pass a test so you can make it into heaven. God isn't up there just, you know, like the Olympics and they hold up the score and, you know, it's, it's not like that. When God created Adam in the garden, we find that his purpose for all of mankind was, was given there in prototype. What does it wanted to do? He just wanted to be with Adam. God made Adam so that he could be with Adam and Adam could, Adam could benefit from being with God. God in his creation of mankind did it so that we could experience his glory because the experiencing of the glory of God is, brings the greatest pleasure to mankind. And so God created us not to do for him, but to be with him. And religion tells us, do for him, do for him, do for him, so you will one day maybe be with him. And Jesus says, no, be with me, be with me, be with me, and I'll show you what you can do for me. It's the, it's, do you see how we flip-flop this stuff? But the Bible says right here, all of this is from God, and he's reconciled us very quickly here. Those that are not in Jesus, and that would be anybody in this place or listening online or later on when it goes through the media, if you can't think of a time where you have committed your will, your decision, where you have said, Jesus Christ is Lord, I am lost, I have offended him, I have sinned against him, he is God. I am rightfully judged. I need his forgiveness, and I don't have any way to earn it. But he says he will give it to all that call upon his name and faith. And so, Lord Jesus, to the best of my ability, I am turning from me. I'm turning from my life. I'm turning from my sin. That's called repentance. And I change my mind about you and about me, and I just say, forgive me. I'm yours. 
And friend, you don't have to pray it like that. You don't have to say it like that. Mine certainly wasn't that articulate. When, literally, when, when God saved me, I said, Lord, here's my life. I've ruined it. But the preacher told me you'd take it. That's all I prayed. And he delivered me that day. Delivered me. Absolutely, radically transformed me. So you don't have to go long, but you do have to be real. You have to say yes to him. And if you are in Christ, then you've been reconciled. That means the relationship that was broken by sin, God has dealt with the thing that broke the relationship, and now you are one with him again. You are reconciled. That means it's sweet that he loves you, that you're not on probation. You've been pardoned. You're certainly not uh, condemned anymore, that there's nothing to fear that you are his. And you don't have to worry about him backing out of that offer because he provided it all in the first place. You did the one thing that was called of you to do, and that is to believe and trust in faith and receive what he has offered. And so we've been reconciled. Now our relationship with God is now new. Father, in the name of Jesus, deliver every Christian in this place from the spirit of paranoid fear about you. Help them not to walk each day on eggshells with you, Lord, but let them have what Adam had before he fell. And that is a delight to walk with you in the simplicity of the day. God grant that in Jesus' name. Our message is now new, verse 18. Christians, listen. We've been reconciled, that's beginning of verse 18, the end of verse 18, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So we just, re, we just launched Newbridge Church. There's a ton of stuff strategically that we're going to have to work out as time goes on. We, we've, got, we've got a lot that we want to do, and for everything that we want to do, there's got to be a strategy in how to do it. When, when people talk about vision, most of the time they're talking about strategy. Because I want to tell you, the vision was written in the blood of Jesus. The vision is that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all things that he has commanded unto them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and trusting that he's going to be with us till the end of the age. The vision for churches is very clear. We are to proclaim in, by any means that we can, not just here on Sundays, not just the guy in the pulpit, not just the teacher in the classroom, but all of us as believers, we are to proclaim that God has provided the forum for every single human being to be reconciled unto him if they will come to him on his terms. And so it's not about, well, you know, you don't really have to believe in Jesus. Just, just think fluffy thoughts about God, and I'm sure he'll give you a free pass. No, friends, it is objective. It is centered. It is anchored in the person of Jesus. It's not about your morality, though I hope you're a moral person. It's not about you being a good spouse, though I hope that you are one, or a good parent, and I hope you are one. Or children, it's not about being raised in a, in a Baptist home or a Pentecostal home or a Catholic home or a Presbyterian home. It's not about church attendance. It's not about your giving, though I hope you'll give. Friends, it is objectively rooted in in this, that we were enemies of God in our former state, but God through Christ came, broke down that wall, brought us to himself, and now that message is now ours to go out in the world and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me, and what he did for me, he'll do for you. And there's not a person in the world that can't be saved, and the only person that can't be saved is the person that won't believe. So too, and I love you, my brothers and my sisters, to my Calvinist friends, I just want to say this, anybody that will believe can be saved. Our call is to take the gospel into the world, not to try to find out who's elect and who's not. So put that one to bed, and let's look at this, and it's very clear, the ministry of reconciliation means this, that we go out with a message. 
that Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ lived, Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ rose, Jesus Christ ascended, Jesus Christ, hallelujah, is coming back to finish what he began. And you can be a part of it. So this is our message. There's a lot of sub-messages that can dominate your life. The message of your career, brother, can dominate your life. You can make your life all about proclaiming your career message. Uh, for, for a lot of women in America, the message is, how can I be beautiful and look more beautiful and stay beautiful? And that's not the message of your life. Uh, the message for young people is, how can I fit in? And so I got to do this. Or, and, and social media has now, I mean, I, I'm on social media. I use it as a... a, a um, virtual pulpit. I just try to proclaim the gospel there. But there's so many messages coming in. And now we're in a political season. So you've got, you've got this message and this message, and, and, and people are going to say, where do you stand? Where do you stand? And you know what can get lost? What can get lost is the fact that actually, I've been given a message that trumps every other message. I've been given a message that will endure through all of eternity. I've been given a message and a calling to share that message. Is that the message my life is proclaiming? Paul says that's what we're all about. And so verse 20, he just puts it in a package. Our loyalties are now new. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Man, we're representing. That means wherever we go, we have an opportunity to reflect the heart, the truth, and the mind of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to interact in our relationships like Jesus does. By the way, you're very much like Jesus when you're interacting with the people that you get along with. I'm so proud of you. Because you're just like Jesus when you're around people that think like you, act like you, encourage you, bless you, walk with you. You're just like him. It's amazing. Want to find out if we're really like Jesus? Go to a family reunion, amen? Or go back to that cubicle with that fellow or that lady that is just a mess. And their mess is spilling over into your cubicle. Sometimes at home when we're not on the same page. Listen, every, every, every couple has to walk this out. You have to walk it out or you'll end up walking out. And here's what I mean. You have to be like Jesus in the midst of conflict in your home. And let me tell you where you're cheating. This is where we cheat in our homes. Well, she's got to be like Jesus too. I'm going to wait for her to be like Jesus. <laughs> then I'm going to be like Jesus. I can be like Jesus, but I'm going to wait for her to be like Jesus first. And she's over there saying, she's saying, well, he's the leader of the home. He ought to lead out in this thing. He, 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 ought, to be, he ought to be showing a good example for me and the kids, so I'm going to let him do it first. <laughs> Y'all be careful when you amen in this place. I'm not going home with you. The point being is this, listen, we're ambassadors for Jesus. It's so easy to be like Jesus standing up in a pulpit when not too many people are going to talk back. I, I get to say whatever I want to. Never, never judge my Christianity by what you see on Sunday morning because it's the easiest time for Jeff Lyle to be a Christian. Well, I'm telling on myself, good night. The point is, is that I'm, a, I'm, I'm an ambassador for Jesus tomorrow morning. Or in staff executive team meeting on Tuesday. Or when I'm getting that email or that phone call from somebody that's not real happy. 
How am I representing Jesus? And so we get down to the last few verses. Y'all been very patient. It's Easter. I've preached long, but I'm going to wrap it up here in a minute. We have a risen victor to, compl- uh, to proclaim. Let's just get back on him. Watch this. Friends, because we have a risen victor to proclaim, let's walk with concern. Verse 20 at the end of it, God is making his appeal through us. We implore you, look at what Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you on behalf. Paul sees the proclaiming and the testifying of the message of Jesus as if literally God is working through us to speak to people that don't know him. So that when we are sharing our faith, I, listen, I, I've been trained to share my faith since the first year I got saved. I know uh, CWT, EE, some of the stuff out of John Maxwell. I've done so many different, uh, share Jesus without fear, all of those. And that's great. Evangelism training is great. But if, if we become fixated on the technique, we'll forget the fact that, man, we most naturally talk about what is most important to us. And so really, the best fuel for evangelism is falling in love with Jesus in private so that when you're living out in public, it just kind of comes through you. And so you can talk to a waitress. You can talk to the dry cleaning lady. If you didn't have galls in your mouth, you could talk to your orthodontist. You could talk to anybody you want. Why? Because we talk about what we love. I used to talk about the Braves when spring chaining ran around. That doesn't happen anymore. In the 90s, I'm just talking about the Braves all the time. Why? I love the Braves. Not much to love anymore. <laughs> Grandparents, back in the days before digital pictures, you say, let, let, let me show you my grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> we do that. We talk about what we love. Falling in love with Jesus is the key to the victorious Christian life. It, that, that, and I say, Jeff, that is so benign. That's just kind of milky. Well, start doing it, and you'll find out that that is not milky, it's meaty. Because most Christians aren't cultivating that. They're doing instead of being. So God is making his appeal through us. If you're here today, and, and, you, and you don't know the Lord, you don't know that you know him. You're not assured in your heart that you're in a right standing with him. You don't know that he's accepted you on the terms that he said. I I just believe he's making his appeal to you through me right now. He's just saying, I love you. I know all about it. I am willing to forgive it all. I will be with you. Whatever changes must come. I'm going to delight in shepherding you when I make you my child. But you've got to come and you've got to bow before my son, Jesus Christ. That's an appeal. And it's one that in his greatest form of love, he gives you the freedom to say yes or no to. That's why Paul said, we beseech you, we implore you, we call you. So walk in assurance. For our sake, verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a three-hour message verse, and I'm not going to do it. For our sake, for look at what God did. God, the first he, he, God, the father, made him, God, the son, to be sin, even though he knew no sin. The son knew no sin. Why would God, listen, just get this with me. God took every nasty, sinful, horrible, unholy, immoral, violent aspect of every single human being 
that ever walked the face of the planet. And all of the wrath that all of that sin, cumulative sin, deserved, God said to the Son, I will place all of that upon you to the degree that Paul says he became sin and all of the fury of the Father from Golgotha, um, excuse me, from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha, all of that was placed upon Jesus. All of the wrath of God's holy fury was placed upon Jesus, even though Jesus had no deserving aspect whatsoever. He deserved the opposite, but Jesus willingly laid down his life and took the cup and drank it full and took it upon himself. And the Bible says he did that for our sake. When we were yet enemies, God commends his love towards us. Christ died for us. He did that for us. But here's the other side of the coin. All that was right and good and holy and perfect and acceptable and lovely and glorious that was on Jesus in that same transaction called salvation, God took all that was good about Jesus and imputed it to your account. So as he's taking off all of your worthy condemnation and placing it upon the sinless Lamb of God, he is then taking all of the glorious acceptance and worth of Jesus Christ, and he is placing that upon you in the moment of your repentant belief. So you leave with all that Jesus earned, and Jesus took on all that you deserved. But at the end of Jesus taking on all that you deserved, that's what Easter is about because what you deserved, if it had stayed on you, you never would have come out of the tomb. You never would have beaten death. You never would have triumphed over the grave. You never would have kicked Satan in his teeth. You never would have been able to do that. But Jesus did. He took the full burden of death and condemnation and wrath and he took it fully. And then three days later, he walked out of the grave. He rose from the dead. He looked at Satan and said, what else you got? And he had nothing. And now all of us that are in Jesus Christ, that gift is now ours. Death holds nothing for us. We're going to physically drop one day. We're going to leave this earth one day. But hallelujah, Jesus said this. I'm just going to quit. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he was dead, yet will he live. He that lives and believes in me will never die. Hallelujah. 